Uh, welcome, I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center here at, uh, at Kennedy School, and we are very, very pleased to have our guest today, Ellen Miller, who is the founder and, and has been the long-standing um, executive director of the Sunlight Foundation. The Sunlight Foundation is one of those journalistic enterprises, and there are not a lot of them, that I think you could think of genuinely as, um, as moral. Uh, moral in their in their creation, in their concept, and in their execution over time. Uh, I'm going to let Ellen really explain what the foundation is, but the essential point is the premise that that people have the right to know, and that government should be transparent, and that sunlight is cleansing. I think that the Sunlight Foundation has over its existence demonstrated how important that is and done that especially in a digital of course uh, context the world we live in now is one in which increasingly there are no rules that are recognized um, and that's part of the culture of the web as well so how something like the sunlight foundation will fit into the world of wikileaks and uh, an alternative media that are that are really not operating within the kind of tradition of journalism uh, that has existed in the past. Uh, and where something like the Sunlight Foundation, which is premised on bringing people access to information that they have the right to have. Um, that's, a, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting question, and one that I think is really yet to be answered fully. But if anyone can answer it, uh, it's you, Ellen. So <laughs> the floor is yours. We're glad to have you here. Well, Alex makes sunlight sound like a, a long-standing institution, and we are just about to celebrate <coughs> our fifth birthday, so we're really quite the newcomers in this space. Uh, and it's nice to see many friends here, um, folks I've seen and worked with before, so, um, so thank you for coming. Um, what I thought I would do is to run through a series of slides, and maybe take 10, 12 minutes to do that, um, and show you the breadth of our work, and then just really try to have a conversation. Uh, many of the questions that Alex raises about um, what is journalism in the age of WikiLeaks um, is what we describe as a the WikiLeaks question. And so I would be interested in hearing your views on that, as well as being, of course, glad to share mine. Uh, but let me start by telling you a little bit about sunlight. So, um, the Sunlight Foundation um, takes its, um, its name, really, from Justice Brandeis's adage, sunlight is said to be the best of disinfectants. Um, and it has been designed to use the power of the Internet and new technology to catalyze greater government openness uh, and transparency and provide tools so that anyone can have access uh, to that information. We often will refer to media and citizens alike. Um, we don't just say journalists, but we talk about media and citizens alike. Um, two things inspired our launch. One was an era of corruption in Washington, which is probably the latest and greatest, which was the fall of 2005. Think Jack Abramoff, Tom DeLay, Bob Ney, a, a Congress uh, rife with corruption. <coughs> but the second was uh, the intersection of the worlds of technology uh, and governance and politics. Uh, the ability of the internet to, as a tool for transparency, engagement, collaboration, and community building. And the question is, how did these two things come together, and what did that mean in terms of um, creating a new institution, and what could we contribute to that? Um, so, let's see if we can make this work. 
Um, our work um, has three basic goals, um, and uh, <coughs> everything sort of fits into these basic buckets. The first is to make it easier for media to do their reporting, um, to write the stories that need to be told, to free the data that is the basis of these stories um, from the basement of the U.S. Capitol and government buildings. Um, second, um, by putting data online, we want to enable the increasingly wired citizenry to ask informed questions. So there's an accountability element to our, uh, to our work as well. And third, we want to use the burgeoning social nature of the web to, um, to create a kind of different kind of atmosphere uh, and relationship with government, a new platform for citizen engagement <coughs> in our democracy. Uh, we're committed to improving access to government information. Indeed, our definition of this is public equals online, sort of redefining what the nature of public information means as being online and, of course, engaging communities in its interest. Our work falls into five different areas. Digitization of data, building tools, uh, advocacy, organizing, and media production. Um, so by uh, digitization of data, um, I've already s spoke about this a little bit, we're really trying to redefine what this means in the 21st century, developing databases out of either electronic or paper records, although we do very little of the latter. Uh, part of this we do through funding. We have a small funding st uh, stream at Sunlight, uh, providing technical assistance, uh, key punching data. We do have a database that we <coughs> send out where the data is actually key punched, but we do a lot of scraping of websites, particularly legislative websites. Um, we also support databases. Uh, most of our funding goes into support of database building by the Center for Responsive Politics, of which I am the founder. Um, and they still have the lion's share of the money, politics, and influence data at the federal level. We support the Institute on Money and State Politics, Taxpayers for Common Sense, does earmarks, and OMB Watch. So the core of what we support is money, politics, influence, and government spending. Uh, we've developed our own data sites as well, everything from one on foreign lobbying, which is pretty hot at the moment, um, to White House visitor logs, to political fundraisers. Uh, one of the places we excel and get a lot of notice is in tool building, um, because we add special value to these kinds of databases that we uh, produce. Um, because without this, you'd have to be a, a wonk or an academic or uh, maybe a high-end computer-based journalism to, uh, journalist to use it. Um, so we build tools, some of which are labeled in this toolbox here, uh, to make political influence information more accessible. And I'm going to show you uh, four of them. One is built right on top of the other. So this is um, a site we have called Transparency Data. It's a holding tank for data. Um, this is the site where if you want bulk downloads of data or you want APIs for your data, you would come here and you would find um, data, the state and federal campaign finance data merged together for the first time. You will find lobbying data at the federal level. Uh, you will find grants and contracts at the federal level. You'll find earmarks. And this is a database that is designed to be infinitely expandable. Every time I say that, my staff just cringes. Uh, but in fact, um, we are, so the, the data we have in here now in this holding tank is all very similar kind of data. It's developed by a small group of nonprofits. But we're now at the stage where we're going to start adding more of what we're describing as corporate accountability data. Um, so it really is designed to be 
infinitely expandable with the idea that at some point in the future you'd be able to type in a search, let's just say Xerox, and you'd be able to see everything that the federal government has about Xerox, whether it's their political contributions or their OSHA violations or their EPA APA, um, uh, uh, data that they have to report, whatever they may have to report. So this is transparency data. On top of this, we built something called Influence Explorer because sometimes journalists want to do a quick search or um, uh, a citizen wants to do a quick search. And so this is a site that gives you a quick overview. You type in General Electric and you can see uh, a basic outline of, of what General Electric's um, uh, profile would look like. Um, and so that, that's, a, that's a much faster way than looking into the transparency data site. On top of this, uh, we have built Polygraphed. Now, I confess, this is the most favorite tool that we have built from my point of view. So this is a bookmarklet. You put this in your bookmark, um, and you may be reading a news article, and you may be reading a blog post, you may be reading a press release, and you click on it, and what it does is identify, as you can see, the highlighted um, entities in a particular um, whatever article or press release that you're reading and then down the right hand side of the page it produces a report for you automatically it tells the story underneath the story um, polygraph is quite an amazing tool and each one of these is designed as that transparency data base site gets larger fuller better more complete each one of these will in turn um, become uh, more complete analysis Another tool we built is called uh, PolitiWidgets. Um, and this is a series of infographics that are completely customizable. We had about 165 newspapers or websites, news websites, uh, use this uh, during the last election about members of Congress. And it's their campaign contribution, their earmarks, and the like. Um, and so this has been a very interesting way to, to push this information out. And at the end of the last year, we uh, released this tool, which is called Checking Influence. Um, and this is built on the same, um, same suite of sites. And this allows uh, the user to look at, um, among the people you may write checks to or use your debit card with, uh, to see what their campaign finance profile actually looks like. Um, and you can add this to your toolbar, and when you go to your banking site, you can click on it, and you'll get a profile of the people that, um, your political money profile. Um, so I noticed this morning that, or a couple of last days, there's been a sort of bubbling about um, uh, the, the Koch brothers, and there's a boycott that's starting. And my husband said to me, as I was leaving the house this morning, are you sure you want to continue to buy Vanity Fair napkins? I said, I knew there were products on that list that we should reconsider. Uh, but there are more and more conscious consumers who want to buy according to their politics, whatever they are. Um, so conceptually, this is what we've done. We've, we've created a suite of sites, one built on top of the other. Um, and that's because Sunlight uh, really considers itself to be in the platform building business. Um, we want to explore particularly the nexus of money, politics, um, and influence to understand and, and understand other government data and how it relates to that um, as an issue that's critical to our life. Um, we uh, are continue to add these uh, kinds of tools and opportunities so that um, many of our sites now will have an opportunity to uh, for the users to sort of self-organize on or you know so we're developing organizing tools on that. So why would you use these sites? 
let's assume you might be interested in BP or might have been interested in BP, whether you're a resident of the Gulf Coast or you're an environmental activist, you can go to these sites, uh, pictured roughly on the left, uh, and in one fell swoop get a sense of who are their lobbyists, how much they were paid, whether they gave campaign contributions, and whether uh, they are living up to the agreements that the federal government has, um, has gotten from them. Uh, so it's a great place to begin your research. Um, iPhone apps, like everybody else, we do iPhone apps. Um, if you're an organizer, um, you can use these iPhone apps, uh, you know, with the people who are in the room and say, you know, let's look up um, our member of Congress and let's give her a call or tweet to her directly. And here is something that I personally find astonishing. Our Android app has been downloaded 371,000 times. And I find that astonishing. Our iPhone app, which is actually not as good, has only been downloaded about 20,000 times. Um, so actually our first thing that we're doing this year is to equalize these apps and make the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the tools of the um, Android app available on the iPhone app. Uh, we think that's part of it. We also were featured in the Android store, and I think that probably has a lot to do with the downloads. But that is really a remark for a pretty wonky, you know, contact your member of Congress, here's what he or she is doing kind of app. Uh, I'm still fairly blown away by 371,000 um, users uh, for that app. Um, our Open Congress site is probably our most um, successful site in terms of traffic. This is a joint project between us and the Participatory Politics uh, Foundation. Um, if you're a good jobs advocate, <coughs> you could use this site uh, to find all the legislation related to that topic, figure out who voted on what piece, uh, do your organizing around this kind of thing. You can find other people who are interested. You can build communities based on the kinds of issues that you're interested in. And this is the site in part because it has the traffic. It has on an average month, so not a month when something is really hot. We have about a million visitors to this site. Um, again, a surprise to me because it is still pretty wonky, but every time we added features where people could participate, like leaving comments on pieces of legislation, it just drives the traffic up. People really do have an interest um, in participating and understanding more what's going on in Congress. Members of Congress and their staff use this site more than they use Thomas. There's a good reason this site is usable and Thomas is not. <laughs> um, we did another um, uh, site uh, during the last election where we asked people to monitor the campaign ads that they saw. Um, uh, Gannett partnered with us on this. They distributed this uh, throughout their websites. Um, and people could actually enter the information uh, that they saw. You know, questions about accuracy here, um, and you know, that's always uh, a challenge when you're doing distributed projects. So to cover the other side of it, we also funded a project jointly with the Knight Foundation um, at Wesleyan to monitor the campaign's uh, ad spending. But so together you had a very robust picture of really actually what was going on. Um, moving away from tools um, a little bit, um, talk a little bit about our engagement work, uh, which is our organizing uh, side of things. Uh, we're also interested in catalyzing the demand for use of these tools and catalyzing the demand for more government transparency. So we've launched a public equals online campaign. Um, we've already developed tech, um, communities of um, technologists uh, who work with us. Um, we've developed communities of policy wonks through our open house project. 
And now we're really trying to dig in and, and understand what's happening at the local uh, and municipal levels, because all politics is local, and sort of spreading the, the meme of the need for greater transparency at those levels as well. Um, and last but certainly not least, um, as I said earlier, we produce our own media. Um, this is sometimes a little scary, um, and uh, but but always fun. So we host six different blogs. I'm not sure I can name them all at the moment, uh, but one of them is on our reporting group site uh, for sure. And we've been doing a lot of blogging about uh, foreign lobbying um, recently. In fact, um, we. Um, break stories um, here. We analyze the quality of data coming from the administration here. Um, and more in, and very importantly, this little uh, lip in the right-hand side is an indication or uh, pointing you towards our Sunlight Live platform, which is our, our award-winning platform for covering live events. One of my colleagues data, uh, dubbed it data jamming. So we'll take a live stream of an event. The first one we did was the President's Healthcare Summer Summit. The last one we did was the State of the Union. I think that was the last one we did. And on the right-hand side, we will have widgets of political influence information. Uh, and we will have a live blog uh, and the, of course, uh, necessary Twitter stream. And rather than providing um, you know, commentary on what's being said, we'll actually provide facts. We'll, We'll provide links to reports. We'll provide the political influence elements that might be influencing what is going on. And in fact, the Knight Foundation has just funded us to uh, convert this uh, cobbled together platform to make it into an open source platform. And I understand it will be ready about the end of April uh, this year so that other people can just take this platform and use it themselves. Uh, that kind of work is very much in our DNA. Um, and one last thing that uh, we're doing increasingly is that we're creating um, tools for journalists. So on the left you see our lobby registration tracker. So um, lobby registrations happen every day and as they come online uh, we are listing them. We will highlight the, the most important ones or interesting ones as we see them. Uh, we also have a post-employment tracker, also known as the revolving door tracker. Uh, and as we identify people um, who have been in positions of influence inside the Congress or the administration and they move on the outside, uh, we will list those as well. Uh, so we're beginning to build more and more tools uh, for journalists as well. Um, and the final piece of Sunlight's work is this. So Sunlight does a lot of really interesting and a lot of very cool stuff. Um, and that's really important uh, to put these tools in the hands of people, but <coughs> laws have to change. Uh, rules have to change. Um, because I don't really think it's the nonprofit's uh, responsibility uh, to make sure the government is open and transparent. Government should do that itself. So we need new laws. We need new policies. Uh, we have two um, part-time lobbyists. Uh, who work for Sunlight, and they are happily registered. Um, and um, we have two, uh, two priorities for this year. One is a reform of the lobby, uh, of the lobby rules, uh, increasing both the depth and the breadth of what is reported and the timeliness of what is reported. And we believe very strongly that this is necessary, particularly necessary, in the wake of the Citizens United decision. Because no longer now can we follow all of the money so we better follow the activity. And the lobbyists, of course, have this um, 
this tool, they have actually a large checkbook in their pocket. Every time they go to visit a member of Congress, um, they don't have to say a word. And the member of Congress will be thinking, is if I say no to what this lobbyist is asking, are they going to spend whatever it takes to defeat me and elect my opponent? And so we, we really believe that it's very important to focus in on lobbying. And then the second priority for the year um, is to continue to promote our Public Online Information Act, which uh, will be reintroduced by Representative Steve Israel in the next couple of weeks and by Senator John Tester as well. And this is a piece of legislation that was drafted last year that would require that any piece of legislation that, is re that requires anything to be made public requires it to be made public online. Um, so that obviously would be a huge uh, step in the right direction. We wouldn't have to depend on the goodwill of the administration to make that happen. It would just um, be required. Um, we do this work. This is the, the moral perspective that Alex, um, I think, was referring to because uh, we think, think that citizens armed with more access can play a much more productive and effective role in our democracy. Um, technology is critical um, to all of this because it allows us to build communities, it allows us to disperse information in ways that citizens can use it whenever they want to use it, uh, to deliver information um, however um, uh, however, uh, uh, journalists or citizens uh, want to use it. And technology has become the key tool for government accountability, we think. So let me stop with that and take your questions. <clears throat> I'm going to ask the, the, the first couple and then we'll all open right. it up for, for everyone. Great. First of all, can you put a little more <coughs> clarity on the on the mechanics of how you do what you do? I mean, do you have, do you, do you have people going to the basements of these office buildings and rooting out this information, putting it on scanners, typing it up on computers, writing it down on yellow pads? Uh, and, I mean, is that still significantly a part of how you go about doing what you do? Or is that really, is that, are those days over? Um, unfortunately, the days are not over. We do a little bit of that. Uh, so the foreign lobbying database that we have, it's called foreignlobbying.org, or maybe .com, um, we actually get PDF records from the Justice Department, and we send them to the Philippines and have them key punched in. Um, most of the other <laughs> records, um, and it's very costly, so that costs us $25,000 a year to do that. Um, most of the other records we scrape from websites, and legal scraping although sometimes I don't want to ask. Um, but most of the other information is made available in some form or format electronically, and we will go and scrape it. So the Open Congress site that I showed you, which is one of our most popular sites, we've just developed five state-based sites. And Sunlight provides the back end. So for Texas, California, Wisconsin, Maryland, and Louisiana, um, we go to their state legislative sites, however awful and backward they are. They are there are electronic versions of their legislative sites. Our team, we have uh, 15 or 16 developers on our staff, uh, three designers. Our team creates a scraper that every single day takes down the information and dumps it into a database. And then our partners at the Participatory Politics Foundation take that information and suck it into the site, the websites that they've created. Of course, they're in the process of still creating them. 
Um, so most of what we do, certainly the lion's share, is um, scraping other people electronically. And are you scraping. planning to do this for every state? Yes, we are. I'm looking for money to do for every state. <laughs> I actually have someone who's now interested. Um, we are planning on doing it for every state. So we, the first five that we did was um, were really the pilot efforts, and they're they're quite beautiful. So you can find those sites at opengov opengovernment.org. And then the WikiLeaks issue. Uh, are you a whistleblowing facility? Potentially, is some is is that an area where you want to do business? Is it part of your your franchise, how do you view sunlight in light of data being made available that is effectively being stolen? Well, um, we try not to steal our data, as I said. Most of the scraping, I think all the scraping that we do is actually legal uh, from the websites. Um, so I think your question, Alex, is uh, not so much what does sunlight do, but is it's sort of a question about WikiLeaks and, and what do they do. WikiLeaks is, um, they, are, they are whistleblowers, pure and simple. Sunlight is not a whistleblowing organization. I mean, we are an organization that believes in data, tools, and journalism. And so, um, so we're a very different kind of entity. Do we blow the whistle? Do we do investigative work based on the data we collect? Yes, we do. In fact, we've sort of made an early mark um, uh, early on in Sunlight's history when we discovered by looking at databases that then speaker Dennis Haster had made about two million dollars on a piece of property that he owned and then sold very shortly after he, uh, he had gotten an earmark for a piece of highway that went very close to his piece of property and he sold his property. Um, so we will blow the whistle and demand accountability when we when we see these kinds of things, and we're looking for them all the time. I mean, the work, the recent work on uh, foreign lobbying, um, you know, introduced a number of important stories that Sunlight has broken because we understand the foreign lobbying database uh, better than anybody else does, and so we can look for connections that seem to be uh, somewhat specious, but. Um, we have always reserved a space in our call for transparency for uh, personal privacy, to protect personal privacy. So when um, our colleagues at OMB Watch, under a grant that we created, were doing the first publicly accessible database on government grants and contracts, and they were receiving information from the federal government that contained social security numbers of people who'd been receiving grants, we called them up and said, do you know that your identification numbers actually have social security numbers in them? And they said, oh my god, you know? So we, we try to, we really are very conscious of, of personal privacy, and we're very conscious of um, national security issues. We believe there is a, um, a sphere to, I mean, state secrets should be state secrets. Um, we are not in the business of defining what should be a state secret and what should not be a state secret, um, and apparently WikiLeaks isn't either. Uh, but our work is in this continuum of technology has sort of let the genie out of the bag. Uh, we try to be responsible um, in all aspects when we release information and we encourage the federal government to do it. Um, WikiLeaks will have a different standard and we can agree or disagree with their standard. But it is, um, from our way of looking, this, there is a continuum now and we can't control it. It's the good news and the bad news about the use of technology. 
Um, the good news is that it's a distributed, a highly distributed medium. Lots of people can participate in lots of ways. The bad news is some people don't use the kind of judgment I would use uh, when releasing information. But I'm not sure the genie is going to be put back in the bottle. Questions? John. Um, do, uh, you mentioned Citizens United. Has that increased opaqueness in terms of what's going on uh, with contributions? And if so, is there any remedy uh, uh, other than uh, legislation? Uh, I mean, <coughs> seems to be lots of funny money flowing in with, from, and sometimes it comes out that it's the Koch brothers who were, of course, probably at the apex of all this. But uh, <laughs> uh, I don't I think they might like to think they're at the apex of it, but they're not alone. Um, they're, Tell us they're, more. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're actually working on a series we're calling, this is off the record, uh, it's a project we're calling the Stealthy Wealthy. Uh, <laughs> there, are, <laughs> there are many wealthy people on both, we're both conservatives, uh, and more, no, on, more on the conservative side. <laughs> I don't even know all of their names, so we're still doing the research, who, who are very strategic in their political giving. Know, and and, and the, the Koch brothers, partly because of the wonderful Jane Mayer piece in the, in the uh, New Yorker last year, uh, sort of really uncovered how, how strategic they are um, in their funding. But the answer to your question is, yes, there is more opaqueness because of Citizens United. It's not quite as great as the body politic would have you seen. That is to say, there is still a lot of reporting going on, even though there is unlimited spending. So a lot of these groups still have to report. Some of them do not. So about half of the total spending uh, was in the last election on the, you know, this outside political ad spending was unreported. Um, and, and so that's always worrisome. Unreported legally or illegally? Uh, and, and unreported legally. So, so Citizens United did create a bucket of people who do not have to report. And so that is obviously of serious concern because Disclosure has been the kind of bottom line of our campaign finance accountability system. So obviously that's, that's quite worrisome. Um, but a lot of these groups are reporting. Um, it comes, but not in real time. So you may discover six months later they have to report twice a year. Maybe they have to report four times a year, but it's long after the election, right? Um, so the lack of real-time reporting is um, is of serious concern uh, to some light. So there is certainly more opacity um, in the process now. The easiest solution, um, though if this was easy, it would have been done already, is, uh, is to pass a new law, that, hence something called the Disclose Act, which failed um, in Congress. Uh, Sunlight had helped uh, to craft a, a piece in there on reporting that would require every dollar spent to be reported in real time on a 24-hour basis. Uh, we felt that that was the kind of transparency that was needed. It's our definition of 21st century transparency. And of course, the act failed. Um, Would it flop in the House or the Senate? Or? Uh, it failed in the House. It was a, it was a, large, it was a fairly large piece of legislation. Uh, we urged at the end that had many controversial pieces. Was it um, pre the elections, though? Yes, uh, it was pre the elections. So some Democrats obviously voted against it. Yes, too. and the White House decided it wasn't at that much of a priority to put that much of a. Mm -hmm. I mean, this will come back to haunt everybody, of course. Um, and so, in the absence of, um, you know, a new law, 
there's really not much you can do to compel disclosure. Except that Sunlight often um, will take on projects that we refer to as doing disclosure to someone, to members of Congress. Uh, Sunlight Live is one of those examples of this, where we will take an event uh, and we'll uh, live stream the event and we will say, you know, perhaps the speakers here are speaking on behalf of their campaign contributors. Here's who's contributing to these members of Congress um, or on these particular issues. Um, we're talking about doing a project now that what we refer to as uh, 100, Congress 180 degrees, turning the cameras around on the audience of listeners at a committee hearing, identifying the lobbyists who are there on a real-time basis, putting it up online, and crowdsourcing uh, who might be sitting in the audience to identify lobbyists who won't be reporting for another quarter who, you know, what they're actually lobbying. So we have a number of efforts that where we, we try to do this. Um, we try to do disclosure to lobbyists to, or lobbyists or, or to, um, you know, the, the influencers. Uh, just uh, going on for a minute, the, the film Inside Job, I mean, shows uh, a significant number of academics, including our uh, not-so-loved ex-president, and people knew that he was getting money. How do you get, can you get disclosure out? I mean, there was a whole cast, I mean, never seen so many scoundrels all in one <coughs> picture. And of course, when he won the Academy Award, he pointed out no one has been sent uh, to jail. The, um, for, I forget, Fergus, I think his name is Fergus. Fergus Charles Fergus, um, right. But uh, uh, could, I mean, just sunlight on these people could at least make them uh, a <coughs> more little accountable, a more accountable <laughs> and maybe less. Uh, yes. Well, there, so there is disclosure. I mean, there is disclosure um, in many respects. And so Sunlight Funds um, uh, gives a substantial grant to the Center for Responsive Politics, OpenSecrets.org. They keep the databases on campaign finance at the federal level, lobbying expenditures, revolving door, um, and many other pockets of influence. To the degree something is reported, the Center for Responsive Politics will keep it at the federal level. The problem, uh, not with their work, but the problem with the reporting is that it, it's a little bit like watching um, the bank robbery in the video after it happens. <laughs> and I think it's a perfect <laughs> analogy to what you saw in Inside Job, which was a, a fascinating, fascinating film. Um, you know it's happening, but you, you don't see it until afterwards. So we try to be as creative as we can in a pushing Congress to you know to uh, to require this information to be disclosed in a more timely fashion online real time, um, and, um, and 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 one of the things that I did actually recently is I spoke to a group of lobbyists, sort of high powered corporate lobbyists, and I said, how many of you have one of these? I held up my phone, and they all got very excited, and they held up their phones, and I said, how many of you know how to text? wave their phone like they're really cool right and I said that's just how easy lobby reporting should be uh, <laughs> and they all put some I actually created um, a, a mock template for just that kind of reporting um, and that's what we would like to try to see um, and so we that's why we have our advocacy arm of what we do which is we really want to try to move um, moves the, the, the process along to require this. Um, I was just thinking of one other thing I wanted to say. Oh yes, that 
Um, one of the things that Sunlight has called for is a requirement that all legislation be posted online for 72 hours before it's considered. <coughs> so uh, that would give everyone a chance to look at the legislation and not have that, you know, bank robbery <coughs> syndrome. So, you know, if I'm an environmental group, I'm watching this piece of legislation, I deeply care about it, and oh my God, look at what's in section 22F. <coughs> I alert my activists, we actually stop that from happening um, by calling on our, organizing our, our constituencies. So um, in the last Congress, John Boehner became a, a big fan of this. Mm -hmm. One would expect that the minority would be a big fan of this. Well, actually, so, so did uh, the Speaker, Speaker Pelosi, also was a big fan of it. And so by, def by default, because of the demand, huge demand and interest in, in uh, the health care bill, that bill was online for 72 hours before it was considered. And, and every other major piece of legislation in the last Congress, not by rule, because <laughs> they couldn't go that far, but by practice. So Speaker Boehner... As soon as it was clear he was going to be speaker, we went to him and we said, what do you think? You supported the last time around? And he said, I'm going to do it. And he has done it. So every major piece of legislation is going online. I'm not sure much of the activist community is quite aware of this yet or what the potential is. But it is, um, it is a huge step in the direction of transparency. Of course, that can be revoked at any time. We would like to see a rule that would require it. But it is, I think, a recognition that the American people are more interested, more engaged, more involved, um, and should have an opportunity to actually look at something that's happening before it happens. We can't always depend on the journalists to look back and tell us, you know, what was in the fine print. You know, the story. Hi, uh, I'm Scott. I'm a student here. Thanks for coming. This is, um, it's, it's, it's quite amazing what, what you guys have done. And I especially like that simple design that makes it sort of easy to use. I think a lot of similar uh, organizations don't, don't do that. Um, so my question is, the, the, the tools that you've created are, are clearly um, fantastic, but I wonder if when you receive funding um, to, to create this, if you feel like you uh, received enough money to adequately market this so that you get beyond, I know you work with, with media organizations, so obviously you're reaching a lot of people there, um, but to get beyond the, the activists um, to sort of a broader set of people, if you feel like you have enough sort of marketing to, and funding to Yeah, do it's that. a really good question because I've said several times this year that I think one of Sunlight's challenges is to get more use of these tools because whatever it is, 371,000 downloads of Android, it's not enough. There are more people. The audience is larger than that. So. Um, the Knight Foundation, to their uh, good credit, actually when we developed our PolitaWidgets site, and uh, they're also responsible for Influence Explorer and PolitaWidgets, um, uh, added money in for marketing. Um, and so it, it's, it, it's very, what you're talking about is very, very important. Uh, we're still trying to figure out how to best market uh, what we do. Um, because it's really not easy. I mean, often, we actually thought at one point we might charge for things because, you know, if the media thought it was free, then maybe it's not very useful. Uh, but we didn't go that route. Uh, so um, greater adaption by, you know, um, citizen activists, activists, uh, on the average online citizen, and there are, you know, tens of millions of, of people online now looking for political information and doing more than just 
um, absorbing information. You know, they'll send an email, they'll leave a comment, they're, if you look at the Pew studies. Um, so we're still very much trying to figure that out. In fact, we're in the process now of redesigning the marketing position that we had to make it even more effective. And so I welcome any thoughts or ideas that people have along these lines. Yeah, um, I guess I have some skepticism that uh, that broadly citizens would use this for various. I mean, so uh, I was talking to the um, Francisca actually was was talking to the stimulus czar in Massachusetts, and he was really disappointed because they designed the site for ordinary citizen analysts to explore the stimulus. Um, most of the people who used the data were, were journalists, as as with sunlight. And whenever somebody did come to the site who wasn't a professional, they were really just looking for a job, not really looking to hold government accountable. Um, and there's a lesson there. But my, my real question is, um, in one slice of sunlight's work, you can interpret as a subsidy to journalism and investigative journalism. That is lowering the cost for journalists to do their work, which is which is excellent, um, especially given the resource constraints on journalism and investigative journalism now. Um, what are there? Are there particular kinds of information that you've heard from journalists is in most demand that they would like most help processing, or is it kind of that they don't really know what stories they're going to write, and so it's a kind of target of opportunity? They'll know a good set of tools, good pieces of data when they see it and will write the story later. Do you see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, no, I do. Let me see if I can try to answer it. So um, I don't know if you know Sunlight's founding story, but I was approached by a Washington businessman by the name of Mike Klein in September of 2005, and he said, A, I'm in the give back phase of my career, B, um, <laughs> what could be done to stimulate more investigative attention to the corruption that is rampant in Washington and state capitals. Um, and because of my own background, um, his initial thought was prizes for journalism, but not played out in the national level, played out at the, uh, at the state or regional level. And I said to him, I didn't think that that was going to work. I wasn't sure, but um, I said, let me introduce you to my friends who are practicing investigative journalists, people who have been thinking about the direction journalism was, was moving in. And so throughout the fall, Mike and I met with lots of people. And to a person, they said, if the information about money, power, influence, and what money, government money is spent on was more easily accessible, they said, A, I could convince my editor that this was a, he should give me, he or she should give me the time to explore this story. And B, um, I could do these stories more quickly, more efficiently. So at the heart of what we, uh, we created in the beginning was this nexus of money, power, influence, and government spending. It still remains the heart of what we are doing. But because there's so much additional uh, accountability information uh, that corporations report to government, we're expanding that pool of, of data we want to create. So it really, so something really was created around this notion of uh, making the data of resourcing, you know, journalists. Uh, I was telling Alex earlier, we trained between I mean, 1,300 journalists last year, 1,500 journalists. We do this uh, working with um, AP, managing editors, IRE, NICAR. Uh, we do web freestanding webinars. Um, and actually this year we're thinking about moving into um, journalism schools or at least postgrads and offering um, uh, full internships at Sunlight for a year or so mm -hmm. in the sort of world of digital journalism. Just trying to figure that out. 
So that is very much at the heart of our DNA. In addition to having those conversations with journalists, uh, we also met with our two, uh, two folks who became our senior strategic consultants, Mika Sifri and Andrew Richet, with the Personal Democracy Forum in New York, who were just beginning to explore the intersection of politics and technology and what was happening there. And sort of together we brainstormed this you know, notion of technology as a tool for collaboration and engagement and, and recognized that the problem wasn't just putting information in the hands of journalists so they could tell their stories more easily, because it wasn't just journalists as narrowly defined, it was media, much more broadly defined, hmm. citizens, um, and you know, what, what, what could we make with the technology? Uh, that made it, you know, easy and for people and encourage people to, to use. Um, I, you know, I, I agree with you, and maybe I overstated, you know, the average activist. But if you look at the Pew studies that suggest, I don't remember what the latest numbers are, but lots and lots of people who we would not regard as activists are online. My brother, a conservative Republican, who will send an article to you know his five best friends or who receives a you know or my sister-in-law who receives a solicitation to contribute you know a hundred dollars they would never regard themselves as political activists there are a lot of people millions of people like that out there so I think it is seeping out into mm -hmm. you know the beyond the activist self-defined activist world mm -hmm. Hello, uh, my name is Tyler. I'm a student here and a former researcher for the National Institute of Online State Politics. Oh, um, lovely. What percentage of your, like, the traffic for your sites is driven by a scandal? As in, as in, um, like, how much of the site traffic is background chatter and what that you get day in and day out and what percentage will be immediately after, like, a story breaks or as the health care bill is up for debate? Yeah, well, unfortunately, there are not enough scandals to drive traffic. <laughs> so most of it is background. <laughs> most of it is just average use traffic. Um, the, um, open, the Open Congress site, as I said, is our, is our biggest. That's about a million hits a month. The Sunlight sites probably get 35,000 um, a day, sort of a combination of sites. When we first started, we built just a ton of sites, and we just sort of threw them out there, and then gradually we tried to consolidate them, because that turned out not to be such a good idea. Um, and so, but most of it's just run-of-the-mill Google search. It's what, what drives it. Um, we're big users of Twitter, and it drives a lot of traffic to us. Um, so I would say Google, and, and but Google search, generic Google search. So when we look at Open Congress, um, and unemployment insurance bills, there are clearly people who are unemployed, and they go to Google, and they look for unemployment, and they end up on Open Congress, <laughs> and they leave comments. So on, on some of the pieces of legislation having to do with unemployment insurance, we'll have 100,000 comments. And it's not all relevant, um, <laughs> but, but people are putting two and two together. Here's a piece of legislation, and here's what I need, or can somebody help me find where I you know, can get my, you know, benefits or determine how much I'm, I'm used to it. So it is community uh, <laughs> creating. But, but the scandal is it doesn't drive that much. We do, when <laughs> we, we monitor our traffic, like, every moment of the day. We actually have a little uh, program we use called Chart Beat. So when we're doing Sunlight Live, we know exactly how many people are on the site and how long they're staying and, you know, what we've said that's funny. 
what we find is last year, the two most popular days we had on our website were what we describe as fun stuff. The first most popular one was when our um, lab staff created a way to open our front door from their iPhones. Uh, and it got picked up and into Gadget and boing boing and the traffic went through the roof. Um, that was tangentially marginal to our work. Uh, and the second one was slightly more uh, relevant to our work, which was um, our youngest staff person uh, <coughs> decided that it would be fun to create a random pack name, super pack name generator. So super packs were these packs that sprung up. Um, and so we put the real names, which are completely oblique and you have no idea whether they're real or not. And then we just used a random name generator. That also was a very big hit. Those were our two biggest hits for the day, as you can imagine. Um, Ellen, you made reference to distributed reporting. And I'd like to know how broadly you see that defined, how, how widely it's distributed, and the problems with it, and also what you see is um, the sort of the maximum use or best use of it. Um, so we've done a lot of distributed reporting um, since we, uh, we started, and we've learned a lot. Uh, the very first project we did was <laughs> about earmarks, and we said, go here and look at the earmark requests and tell us what you find. That was a total failure. Um, so the next thing we did was a very confined um, sort of research project that really felt like a game. And it was called, Is Congress a Family Business? And we said, go to these pages, and we line these pages up, and determine whether the name of the spouse of any sitting member of Congress, and enter it here, we provide a little box. Then go here and uh, see if their name appears on the expenditure list. And if so, enter it here and tell us how much it was. So that we've, what we discovered was the more confined and more um, sort of directive we were in the research, the more successful we were. Mm -hmm. um, and we did a number of these projects, and they were all quite successful. They did not draw huge numbers of people. Um, one person, I believe it was the Congress's family business, researched 200 or 50, 215, something like that, members of Congress. So we wrote to him, and we said, why did you do this? And he said, you'll love this, I always wanted to be a journalist, but life took me in another direction. <laughs> and uh, so we were very touched by that. And then, in fact, he did go to journalism school. We stayed in touch with him. Um, we, um, we did a number of these. They were sort of one-off projects. Um, and then we realized um, uh, that this was a community of people that if you were interested in researching A topic, you might be interested in researching B. So we created a site that's a bit dormant now called Transparency Core, C-O-R-P-S. Um, and with the idea that we would put lots of projects there and people could earn points for participating in this one and doing that one. And several of the projects we've done in the quality control arena, um, the research that we asked to be done, look at this document, enter this information here, might be done three or four times. Now, you as the user would not know that, so you would come and spend 15, 20 minutes or an evening working on this research project, but then I would come along and I might get exactly the same documents. And so what we do is we try to, to the best we can, repeat the research to ensure accuracy of it. Um, and we recognize that this is distributed research, and anytime if it is not hand-checked, 
um, and a lot of it we don't hand check. You know, we make sure that that's, that's clear. We did another distributed project on members' websites, help us find whether members of Congress have listed these five or six elements, have these five or six elements on their website. Uh, we just put that research up raw and fairly predictably, members of Congress came back to us and said, oh, we have our earmark list there, you know, 10 <coughs> links down. And we said, fine, but we're happy, more than happy to collect the record, you know, correct the record. Um, so we've experimented with it a lot. It, uh, the answer to this is you cannot just throw this out. These have to be monitored, directed, um, and thought about a lot um, to be successful enterprises. Um, just to think of uh, journalism a little more narrowly, um, are there any particular stories that have broken news or that some of us in this room would know about that really stemmed from data that you uh, came up with? Um, well, uh, I mean, I think the biggest story that we broke was this Dennis Hastert story, linking earmarks uh, to uh, personal financial disclosure uh, documents. And after that was done, there were a series of stories that other journalists did. Cop it was pure copycat journalism, mm -hmm. but there were a number of people who were looking at earmarks and, and connections mm -hmm. like that. Um, trying to think, uh, we did a, a series of trainings a year or two ago with AP in which they were looking at, let's see if my memory serves me right, uh, the, again, earmarks and camp, but this was earmarks and campaign contributors. And on a single day, and I think it was a Labor Day, 20 newspapers affiliated, you know, with their AP reporters broke stories on those days. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I mean, it's it's almost a sort of, in a way, a ho hum story. Mm -hmm. um, but it was probably news, you know, in their backyard. It's a good question, and I'm not sure that I have other examples to to really cite. What's, um, what's happened is, I think for many years, the Center for Responsive Politics has fueled uh, this kind of information. You rarely see a story about legislation today that doesn't include sites to campaign finance and lobbying data. What's happening is, as we sort of uh, make it easier for people to use this information, is you see uh, more bloggers using this kind of information. Um, you see people not just citing the old days, they used to just cite the campaign finance information. Now almost every story cites campaign finance and the lobbying information. Uh, there's more attention paid to the lobbying side of the equation. And more and more people are using the data from the Institute on Money and State Politics to pull into this because, you know, the influence industry does not just stop in Washington or at the state capitals. And so if you look at, you know, uh, lobbying by almost any industry, think of the pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. you begin to see the power of what they put into on the campaign uh, contribution side as well as on the, um, on the, uh, the, so the contributions at the federal and the state level as well as their lobbying when you can put this information together. So making it easier to find it all in one fell swoop is what we're trying to do. We're out of time, I'm sorry to say. Ellen Miller, thank you so much. This has been a